Get ready for another episode of the SockNet Podcast, where enterprise end users and tech industry experts come together to discuss in the trenches real-world solutions to the challenges faced by today's technology teams. And now your hosts, Yadine Porter de Leon and Tony Piscopo. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the SockNet Podcast. I'm Eden Porter de Leon, and with me as always, my friend, my colleague, and the most microservices man in technology, Mr. Tony Piscopo. Thank you for the awesome introduction as always, Eden. <laughs> you know what? Do you know what microservices is, Tony? It sounds like little tiny modules that we put inside of race cars. Yeah. So, you know, there is microservices architecture, I think, in uh, RC controlled uh, devices. You got a, you told me about a drone you had, uh, and, and this was a use case I'd never heard of. This drone... It, uh, it cleans your ceiling. You have vaulted ceilings like 20 foot high, and you actually use the drone to clean the top uh, of your ceiling. Is that true? It gets the cobwebs out, out of the corners. You, you, you get it really, really close, but you have to watch out for the uh, wind effect off, off of the walls because you have a tendency to crash. Have you had a crash in your house? Of course. Of course <laughs> we've crashed it. Well, two boys, I imagine that uh, a drone inside uh, has to have an incident at some point. All right. Well, enough about that. Let me uh, let's get right to a guest because we have a, an extremely special guest with us today, uh, and that is Madura Muskowski. And uh, am I getting your name right? That's right. Fantastic. And she's the co-founder and VP of product at Platform Nine Systems. Uh, Madura, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, folks. Fantastic. Well, um, containers, microservices, architecture, and open source can no longer be ignored, and I'm seeing this more as a as a trend. And these trends are are being fueled by real-world operational and business value that is reshaping the way in which developers and infrastructure teams actually perform what they do. Um, but before we get into that, I know there's also an interesting announcement that you have for Platform 9 as well. Uh, before we get into how these things are adding value and why they can't be ignored, I want to take just a quick moment to let the list- listeners know who you are and a bit about your background. So you know you uh, have a master's from Stanford, uh, seven years at VMware, and now you've been doing this for about three years. Give me a, a sense of, because uh, uh, now you're, you're a founder of what, what I consider one of the most intriguing open source startups in the Valley. What's that, what's that journey been like? You know, it's, um, it's interesting. I think I've mentioned this before. I, I, I never thought that I would be a startup person, that I would want to start my own company at some point. Um, but I reached a point in my career where nothing else seemed interesting except for doing something of your own. And, and, and then I was fortunate enough to have like-minded co-workers at VMware who were at a similar point in their career. Um, so that's how myself and my co-founders came together and uh, Platform 9 got started. And it's um, it's been one of the most rewarding experiences. Um, I think it's something I would highly recommend for anyone who's uh, who's who's had the dream to become an entrepreneur to, to try um, at some point in their life. Oh, fantastic. And was that, when you first got started, were you like, Suresh, did he come to you and you said, no, you're crazy? <laughs> no, it was... Um, <laughs> You know, once we realized that we, um, we, we've kind of plateaued at our careers and we were looking for something new, then we just started brainstorming on completely random ideas as part of our lunchtime, and we would always have lunch together, myself, Shirish, and Rupa. Um, and we went through a whole bunch of ideas. They were all in the consumer space, um, and they were all um, crazy, wacky. We very quickly realized, though, that we don't have enough context in the consumer space, um, and so we might not 
be as effective as we could be in the enterprise space. So we came back to our roots um, after a slight bit of detour. Um, and then, yes, there were, there were a bunch of crazy ideas. Shirish was always, um, Shirish and Rupak both, uh, very, very talented and always full of uh, crazy, uh, imaginative ideas. Um, ultimately, we kind of landed into what were uh, sort of key important insights that we had gathered through our experience at VMware, which was about open source eating the world and about uh, SaaS being the the only de facto form of consuming software in future. Um, and so that's that's where we founded Platform 9. And there's a lot of things actually in there I want to I want to get into, but um, since this is really a show I think focused on containers and why containers matter and and all the the pieces around that, um, I want to sort of get right into it. And um, and from your perspective, what are containers? And especially as a consumable abstraction layer, helping you know helping companies and, and business from a standpoint. Um, how are they helping? Let's say, for example, you know, developers like write once uh, and run everywhere. Um, how is it? How are, their, how are their portability of containers really great against virtual machines? Um, and I want to debunk a couple myths, but I want to sort of pass that first question off to you. Yeah, so, uh, you know, kind of going back to basics, right? Everyone is uh, familiar, uh, typically folks in the computer science domain at least are familiar with the notion of uh, an operating system or a computer running an operating system, right? And and then when you run applications on top of that operating system, these applications are running as uh, different processes, Right and now, what containers are uh, is 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 uh, think of them as your applications and and their dependencies that are being packaged and run into these resource isolated processes. Right, so it's as simple as that. Um, but when you contrast it with virtualization, right, what happened with virtualization is that there used to be a host operating system, and then on top of that, you run a guest operating system as a process, and then you run your application inside it. Um, so the benefit that containers really bring is is the, is because of the fact that they get rid of one layer of isolation, um, and and they bring a lot of efficiencies um, by doing that. Right, so uh, because your applications are running without the overhead of an extra operating system, you can pack more of them on a single instance. Um, that was really the kind of the big reason why containers started becoming popular because of their lightweightness compared to virtualization. Uh, but today, if you look at uh, you know the container journey and why they're truly so uh, important from a developer's perspective, there's a whole bunch of reasons beyond that uh, that lightweightness, although it's, it's still very important. Yeah, and are you seeing a transition from people really going from that, you know, something on top of another operating system to people really embracing a barren metal application? So, um, you know, and that's a very interesting question, right? Because that lightweightness is really what enticed people towards containers early on, I would say. But, um, but, but now, if you look at the usage of containers on private infrastructure or public cloud, um, when you run containers in public cloud, you're still utilizing virtualization behind the scenes, right? At least today, because you run containers on top of EC2 instances or the same thing in other uh, public clouds as well. So you aren't really getting that lightweightness benefit always, but that, that's where, you know, we've now come at a point with our containerization journey as, as, a, as a market where the other benefits of containers, and there are a number of them, right? Uh, benefits around portability, around the ability to do version controls, around uh, you know developer efficiencies through the microservices paradigms are uh, are far outweighing the, the lightweightness benefit. And so there are enterprises who would still run containers on bare metal servers when they really care for that 17% more performance, right? But if you don't care so much for that, uh, but you still love the portability and lightweightness aspect, you would still fully embrace containers, but you would run them across virtualization and bare metal. 
Okay, excellent. And I want to just sort of debunk one myth for some of the people who are listening to this right now and saying, this is all sounding complex and I'm not this really crazy agile company. Uh, one myth is that you have to have a microservices architecture within your application to even embrace containers. And that's just not true. I mean, you can start with a monolithic application and start to modularize that. Is that correct? That's right. In fact, that's probably the best way to get started with containers mm-hmm. as you're playing with them. We just take take maybe a simple monolithic, um, you know, single process uh, application and try to containerize that. And you can always start with really simple things like an Apache web server or a, or a WordPress deployment, etc. Um, now, as you get sophisticated, though, with your container deployment, you will quickly realize that uh, dealing with just individual containers can complicate things and result into additional problems such as container sprawl, etc. So that's really where you truly realize the benefit of microservices and using a, using a good framework that lets you handle containers the appropriate way. Yeah, yeah. So I think you're, you're already segueing into the next thing. <laughs> So, so now that you've got VM sprawl and you've got different things to manage that, mm-hmm. and you're going to have container sprawl where everyone's excited about microservices, uh, and um, and just to sort of to, to drive that that last point home, like let's say for example, you, you could look at really as a monolithic application as just a group of services and using that D as a service. So taking mm-hmm. something like a booking service uh, and then starting with that, you know, with a monolithic application and just and then sort of taking those modular. But then you, like you said, you could then end up taking a modular or a monolithic application and then ending up with a whole bunch of containers mm-hmm. that now become hard to manage. Now you're getting the benefits of maybe modularity and portability, but you're also having you're also adding complexity in as well. And I think that's probably one of the things that objections that I've heard was like, well, you're just adding more complexity. It's just mm-hmm. taking one giant thing and cutting it in a smaller place. It's like, well, where is that layer of abstraction that then allows me to remove that complexity? And I think that's one of the things that that you guys have done with one of the new services that you had for managing containers. But before I get into that, I just wanted to um, just wrap up one thing here. And I heard a, a great quote just talking about benefits of, uh, of containers here just for a second. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite quotes is a, is a haiku uh, from one company, and I won't, I won't, I won't mention their name. Um, but they, this great company where it says, here's my code, run it in the cloud, I don't care how. But I think that falls short. And I think one of the, the, the pieces of it, I mean, there's, there's ops applications for this, and then there's developer applications for this. But I think that, that haiku doesn't quite go far enough, and I think Platform 9 is moving that haiku to, here's my code, run it. Anywhere and everywhere, I don't care how. And the cloud is great, but the cloud isn't everything. Not all the workloads are in the cloud. Not everyone is, exists as a cloud pure play. Um, there's still people that have racks and racks and racks of gear that needs to play nice with the cloud, and they need to be able to manage it. They need one abstraction layer to be able to manage all of it. Um, is that was that the goal when you guys first set out? Let's say on your on your lunches, and you were talking about your wacky ideas. You're like, you know what? Why don't we? Why don't we just? take away all this complexity, make something consumable, and turn it into this very complex, you know, different components, and then turn it into something that people just don't even care how it works anymore. Just like you get in a car, you don't need to know how a combustion engine works to get in a car and drive it. You just get in, you press a couple pedals, and it goes. Yeah, and I, I love the way you, you put it, right, which is um, in that kind of ties in so well with uh, some of what we're doing uh, with Fission, et cetera, which uh, you know, I'd like to talk about at, at some point in this podcast. But, um, you know, just take my code and, and deal with it. And, um, you know, our, our vision as we got started was um, really uh, coming from our realization that uh, public cloud is extremely powerful and popular, but it cannot be the only way for uh, an enterprise or an organization to run your infrastructure because that creates the problems of locking your developers into a single ecosystem, right? And by nature, us developers like choice. Uh, we want to 
pick and choose the best tools that uh, let us do our job in the most efficient way, and we want the best ability to use them. Um, and that's where we felt that if if there was if your abstraction layer that you were dealing with was 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 a platform layer and an open source uh, platform layer, that that made it immaterial in in in, in many ways where that infrastructure capacity, the underlying capacity is coming from, that presents an even powerful um, uh, kind of uh, com uh, cloud infrastructure paradigm to end users than just going to a single public cloud. Um, yeah. So we had that, uh, you know, since beginning, and that's where we started with virtualization and OpenStack and then made OpenStack hybrid, and now with Kubernetes, it becomes even easier to do that. Yeah, so let's all transition at this point. Um, I think it's a good spot here where, so now, Kubernetes, just for those you know, those few people, and I've actually been to a lot of trade shows, you know, especially even VMworld, and I'll do a show of hands. I'm like, who knows what Kubernetes is? <laughs> uh, and, and a lot of people are just going to get their feet wet. So um, great sort of overview of containers, the benefits they have for portability. Um, but then we, of course, run into that wall of, okay, well, what's the problem with when you have a lot of these containers? How do I manage them? And as an ops person, I'm already thinking about, okay, great, developers might love the portability, and I want to support them, but how am I going to manage it? So Give us quick before you kind of go into you know your managed Kubernetes service, which you guys just started, which uh, which a lot, getting a lot of really great buzz right now. Um, go into sort of how Kubernetes you know um, manages things and manages containers, and then how you sort of wrap that into a managed service. Yeah, so you know the big benefit with the uh, the microservices architecture, right, is um, again beyond the the lightweightness, it really lets you break down your um, monolithic applications, which are which have been traditionally scale up and and have all the disadvantages of a scale up app, right, which is there's only so much resources you can pack into either a process or a virtual machine, um, and um, and it's not highly available, it's not uh, resilient, fault tolerant, etc. Microservices really let you uh, introduce a completely different different paradigm that's more cloud-native for uh, re-architecting your applications. Um, now, the drawback is that going with a microservices pattern does require you to re-architect your application. That's really the right way to do it. But but doing that presents so many advantages to you. Uh, what you're doing there is you're breaking down that single process monolithic app into several micro-segments um, and running uh, each individual component of that app as one microservice instead of running that whole app as a gigantic service. And then each microservice may be composed of one or more containers that are deployed in a scale-up manner, right? So um, you're kind of breaking your application at several uh, at, at several la layers, and that lets you scale out each of those layers or scale it down and run, run them in a uh, highly available manner. Um, so that's what a good microservices frameworks off, uh, framework offers, and, and Kubernetes is a lead Leading framework, leading open source framework started inside Google that has a number of built-in um, semantics constructs that let you architect your applications for this new paradigm. And then once you do that, it packages a number of built-in benefits around uh, dealing with the life cycle of those applications. Um, Sorry, just a quick question. I, I, I know we were talking about open frameworks, and, and how are you guys interacting with some of the larger enterprises dealing with a, an open framework versus a, a closed source um, management system? Because that, that seems to be something that we see a lot of, that uh, a lot of the larger enterprises want that warm, fuzzy blanket that, that it's a closed source versus an open source um, management. 
Yeah, you know, so we, you know, I come from VMware, right? I spent about seven years um, at a company which uh, built an extremely lucrative and successful business being a closed source company. Um, but we do feel strongly here at Papa Mind that while that was true uh, a decade ago, um, it was still possible to be the leading player in infrastructure management uh, and still be closed source. Uh, I don't think uh, that will be repeated um, anytime in future. That that's our perspective because we believe that uh, the today and the future of cloud infrastructure management and consumption is going to be dominated by open source uh, technology and frameworks. Um, if you look at the all the great innovation that's happening today and, and new, it's all been um, in open source, right? Uh, in terms of Docker container technology, um, OpenStack, CloudStack, Kubernetes, um, Docker's own orchestration tools, um, you know, um, OpenShift, Red Hat has been a big, big proponent of uh, open source since the beginning. So, um, you know, and, and what we see at least is enterprises are truly realizing and embracing it and understanding the importance and power of it. Um, and the importance is that it starts becoming a standardization layer that you can hold your vendors accountable for. And um, and, and it gives you better uh, pricing leverage um, and, and a better quality framework than one built by a single organization. So I wanted to unpack one of those pieces too. Have you found yourself in organizations where you found that teams have tried a microservices architecture, they've found themselves within, you know, in, a, in a, an environment of container sprawl or the complexity is too overwhelming, and you've come in with a solution that allows them to manage that complexity and sort of throw their hands up and say, look, this is too hard. And you come and know it's not that hard. Here, here's a nice consumable, you know, abstraction layer where you can manage that. And that is that how the Kubernetes like managed service came about? Did you find yourself in a lot of these rooms talking to people about how much the complexity was just sort of crushing them and they needed something that was easy like consuming infrastructure via, you know, via like an OpenStack SaaS service, which is the core of your business? Yeah, you, you know, so as, as folks realize the power of Kubernetes, you know, what we've seen and, and, and they're looking to truly embrace it, uh, the next order question is then, what do I need to do to get Kubernetes deployment, right? And and, and, and it is an open source framework, uh, which means it comes with a certain level of uh, complexity uh, when it comes to deploying it, configuring it, et cetera. And, and now if you're truly trying to get a multi-cloud uh, um, infrastructure paradigm um, set up with Kubernetes, which Kubernetes really enables you to do that. But now you're bringing in added complexity in terms of being able to really create a production-ready deployment that scales across public or private cloud, say, across multiple um, availability zones, different regions, etc. And that's where uh, you know our SaaS-managed model just kind of breaks away or, or takes away all of that complexity by uh, abstracting it or simplifying it uh, through our software-as-a-service model, right? So we are uh, infrastructure agnostic uh, with our Kubernetes-managed uh, offering. So you can deploy managed Kubernetes on your private infrastructure or uh, your favorite public cloud, but the actual details of the deployment are fully handled by Puff Online. Um, and it's not just a one-time deployment. We fully manage the life cycle of your Kubernetes cluster. So we do 24-7 monitoring, life alerting, um, auto-diagnostics and healing, as well as fully orchestrated updates and upgrades to Kubernetes. Yeah, yeah that last point I definitely want to call out that mm -hmm. updates because uh, a lot of people and Tony and I will be in the room and we'll be at you know a large enterprise and there's always like three or four people in the back of the room that aren't saying anything but are completely freaking out inside because they're like 
I, I kind of understand what you're talking about, but this is going to be something that's going to be crazy. And how do I deploy it? And how is this going to affect my architecture? I'm, I'm just I'm the storage person, or I'm the network person, uh, or you know I'm in charge of X, Y, and Z. And I, I'm like I I don't know how this how am I going to do yeah, updates? And you know how am I going to make sure that we're compliant with certain regulatory you know uh, bodies? And how am I going to make sure that the latest versions of the software is and all these different things? If there's going to be how many how many containers are there? And how long are they going to live for? And who's going to manage all this stuff? And who's going to take ownership and I think that's a uh, sort of one one thing that, that I want to transition into is the whole DevOps component and ownership and accountability for all the different components of you know of sort of a microservices architecture because that it's not rooted in a lot of large organizations. So I think that piece that you said the last one about updates, I think mm-hmm. that's that's key to call out because a lot there's gonna be people in the back of the room that are kind of freaking out but not saying anything, going, uh, how am I gonna update this? And how am I gonna know what's updated or what version is on these million different containers or how many are there gonna be? Um, so we always like Tony and I are actually one of our specialties is going in and making sure that we just we find those people in the back of the room. Mm-hmm. We hold their hand and say it's going to be okay. <laughs> so right. you're talking about silos. Silos, yes, <laughs> silos. So people live in their silos. It's about it's about silos reaching across silos, um, and so I think moving in that discussion sort of naturally into that sort of accountability world, and that that sort of brings up the whole idea of DevOps. And one thing that I heard though is people come to the show. Let's say for example the DockerCon show, um, and and they'll they'll talk about how how it seems like it's still more ops than dev. And the developers are becoming a buying source, and some people are starting startups selling to developers, but it seems like the buying centers are still very ops-related, and ops people are saying, okay, we're becoming more friendly. So really, it's more like you know dev-friendly uh, ops instead mm-hmm. of DevOps. Uh, and are you seeing a shift in a developers becoming more of a buying center and starting to be more attracted by something like a managed Kubernetes service, which would really get them excited because they have things like you said, choice. Like I want mm-hmm. RabbitMQ or I want Hadoop. I don't want to be locked into an AWS that the infrastructure guys are really excited about. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing that? Yeah. It, what's interesting is that as you know, uh, as we experienced the virtualization way over the journey, that was really all about IT teams, um, infrastructure management teams, right? And at that time, we were in the world where there would be a, a, a an isolation between the IT side of an organization and the development side. Um, isolation uh, resulted in a in a very dynamic interaction between the two teams, right? Where a lot of push pull was involved, a lot of uh, a lot of roadblocks in developers requesting virtual machines and the IT fulfilling them. Um, and so, to merge those two, DevOps really um, originated or uh, came out organically, where um, uh, where the ops folks are coming from development background and are very much uh, developer friendly and are there to enable the developers. Um, now, as we see the, the the Kubernetes revolution, the container revolution, what we see is that um, you know that phase of infrastructure management or, or, or infrastructure consumption has been led by developers. In that, developers are saying that microservices is the right paradigm, and we're going to rearchitect our application, and hence they are conveying to their ops. Uh, counterparts, which are the DevOps folks, that, hey, in order for me to deploy this in a year or so, I'm going to need uh, a completely different kind of infrastructure from you. Uh, and so that that's kind of motivating the, the DevOps folks to really take a hard look at, at these frameworks now and, and trying to figure out what that strategy is going to be for them, say, a year in advance um, or, or this year. 
uh, and how are they going to deploy and manage it. Um, so it, it's really interesting. Um, we, we are seeing a lot more uh, developer engagement. Um, the ops side is still on wall, which they you know will or should be because they are there to ultimately enable the developers. Um, but but the traditional isolation has been breaking away, and we think this this pattern is just going to continue. And if you think of it, if if we're going in the world of hybrid cloud consumption, then uh, then the the ops portion becomes even simplified in that case, right? Because a developer can just go to a public cloud and swipe, swipe a credit card. So um, I think we're going to continue seeing this as we keep raising the the levels of abstraction. Yeah, and you see a. a Maybe not a fragmentation, but a division of the market of organizations that are going to go to a prescribed, all-in-one, everything out of the box solution like an AWS, where everything's just kind of you know off the shelf, versus teams that still want that choice and want to be able to avoid lock-in. Do you see that really being a dichotomy, or do you think there's it's a lot more nuanced than that? So um, you know there there certainly are and. Uh, even today organizations that decide to standardize on all AWS. Uh, that typically tends to be a decision made somewhere at the management or ops layer and, and for good reasons because there's a lot of uh, simplicity you can technically achieve by doing that, right? Um, however, uh, you know, uh, there's also been this pattern emerging that a big subset of those organizations, after having done that and having run that way for some time, really start realizing the cost of that model or some of the drawbacks of it, um, not just from cost, but from visibility, measurability perspective. So uh, so they then try to uh, change their strategy a little bit and incorporate one more cloud or maybe some private infrastructure. So we tr- believe in and what we've seen as a pattern even in the three years excuse me, um, that Platform 9 has been uh, running for, that um, that a good chunk of organizations, if not all of them, after going an all-public cloud route, realize the true benefit of a multi-cloud environment and, and, and decide to go that way. Um, and, and frameworks like Kubernetes make it even easier to go the multi-cloud model. Right. So we, we think that a majority of enterprises in future are going to be truly hybrid and, and the stacks of tomorrow are, are going to be built to inherently embrace that hybrid um, the hybridness of infrastructure yeah I like that that's one of the buzzwords and a highly contentious term hybrid cloud <laughs> and people actually defining what that means I think I, I think it's it's good for people to have an understanding that that when you have all these different tools at your disposal um, you don't have to be in one box or the other you don't have to be you know on-prem or all in the cloud or if you know or you've got to have you know you know colo and all this it's just a whatever your application needs, whatever your business needs, whatever is going to make you help you focus on what the core of your business is. You're like, I'm an insurance company. I don't need to worry about X, Y, and Z. I just need it to work. Right. Um, and it seems like people are understanding that paradigm. They don't have to be all in cloud if right. that's not what's going to work for them. One question I had around the choice of Kubernetes was, what, what attracted you to Kubernetes as the open source tool to support uh, and was uh, was a was the community uh, the Kubernetes community a big uh, driver in that decision? When we evaluate any open source framework as something that we potentially would support, we look at uh, two or three different factors, right? The maturity of the framework or the project itself, uh, the level of uh, community adoption, and the level of enterprise adoption in terms of production deployment. Uh, if any, right? And uh, if you look at Kubernetes and compare it to, say, either Docker Swarm or Mesos, it, it completely outshines the other two in terms of all these three factors, right? It's an extremely mature and robust framework that originated from inside Google uh, based on their internal use cases. Um, it has, you know, had a broad enterprise adoption in terms of 
companies um, such as Box or, or eBay or others uh, publicly speaking about their Kubernetes deployments. And it has an extremely thriving and strong community, right? Meaning um, a new version of Kubernetes, Kubernetes comes out every three to four months. And if you look at the amount of innovation that happens in each of those major releases, it's just astounding. So um, so it was a no-brainer decision for us. So we, um, we believe Kubernetes is going to um, be the framework to, to rule all other frameworks. One thing I wanted to go over, too, is sort of the um, that market or the product market fit. Um, and are you seeing that people are coming to the solution because they're, they really want to consume Kubernetes, but they don't want the complexity? Or do they just have a problem to solve, and you just happen to have chosen Kubernetes as the best of breed open source technology that's going to solve that problem? So today, if you look at our Kubernetes customers, they've definitely, they're, they're savvy in terms of knowing what they want, what they don't want, right? And, and Kubernetes today is at a level where there is still a bit of complexity involved. Uh, even as we simplify the deployment aspect, even in just pure consumption of Kubernetes, there is complexity still involved. So you need to be at a certain level of maturity with your containerization journey before you can truly start um, leveraging the benefit of Kubernetes, right? So if you look at the, the customers we work with, they have uh, worked with uh, uh, Amazon ECS or, or Mesos or uh, Kubernetes on its on, on their own um, and, and realize the, the pros and cons and benefits. So they know what they want um, and they really understand the benefit of managed model in that scenario then. Um, as, as we, uh, as you know, just we progressed through 2017, 2018, etc., uh, both through some of what we are planning to contribute to Kubernetes as well as uh, what the community is planning on doing. There is going to be a lot more simplification that's going to happen, right? At the same time, the market is going to get more educated. It's going to become more mature. So you will you will also see uh, Kubernetes starting to entice those folks who might be relatively early in their containerization journey. Okay. So eventually you imagine that there's going to be a lot of organizations just coming saying, you know what, I just we need a microservices architecture and we need a cons- you know, consumable SaaS service that helps us manage it. And great, Kubernetes, we don't care. Right, <laughs> exactly. It could just be, just be like, just know that it's a proven technology, a proven SaaS service, and, and the underlying you know, um, bits and pieces are, you know, like a lot of things like, you know, there's underlying things of Kubernetes that are levered that people just don't even know. They just consume Kubernetes, and Kubernetes leverages a lot of other building blocks that have, that have kind of come before. That's exactly right, and that's a, a platform line value proposition, right? And in, in many conversations, even today, as uh, once people understand the microservices paradigm and they're comparing, say, Kubernetes versus Mesos, we're able to demonstrate to them, hey, these are the reasons why Kubernetes is better. Um, so those conversations happen today. Now, I have a question, and it, it, it's more, again, focused on the enterprise side. I mean, wh- what if I was a client out there, what would be the first steps that you would really look for from an infrastructure standpoint for me to take this on? Um, you know, wh- what, is the, what does the perfect client almost look like for you guys that comes into your environment? You know, it's funny, on, on the OpenStack side, I always used to say that folks that are perfect customers for us are those who've had um, failed OpenStack experience, right? Meaning they've tried doing OpenStack in-house and and they've really realized the the difficulties around it. Um, it it's kind of similar in the container world, right? A, a perfect fit customer for managed Kubernetes really is someone who has dabbled with uh, building containerized applications but gone beyond that, tried deploying it at scale to some extent, uh, tried working with, say, ECS and realized that it's actually a pretty complex offering uh, and it, it relies on you a lot on maintaining, managing it, um, it, or maybe 
played with misos a little bit um so that's that's a good profile because if you if you're too early uh then you don't really benefit from the managed offering because you're probably better off working with containers on your laptop or, or, or on your single machine and really understanding the benefits of any of containerizing your applications in the first place right so um i would say great fits for us are folks who are uh, relatively in a in a mid mid to late stage of their containerization journey i wanted to just uh wrap up with uh one question about one of the uh one of the new products like that's coming out which is called fission and so my understanding is this is kind of your answer to like aws lambda how do you see this as part of i guess the overall product strategy i'll kind of i'll put a um put a sort of wrapper around that because it seems like a lot of going back to that sort of DockerCon sort of you know DevOps more ops than dev experience um, it seems like as you're starting to move towards having these developer centered applications and startups wrapping around those ops or dev friendly ops centered applications you really want to look at sort of services that actually are going to be delivering to both equally and not just let's make ops job easier for dev or let's make dev jobs easier when communicating with ops. This really actually is coming more into the idea of let's just make it seamless for everyone. You know, ops sets up infrastructure to consume whatever the abstraction layer and then dev is pushing their code into that same abstraction layer. Are you seeing that as the successful direction of companies that can't just make dev or ops tools? You really have to make something that works or creates a layer for both to work in tandem? Um, so, you know, from Fission perspective, really, um, you know, where Fission originated is uh, it took inspiration from the serverless movement, right? So Amazon started serverless movement with Lambda, and it is a really powerful uh, paradigm uh, for doing what we early on mentioned, which is here is my code, just take it and run it in the cloud or run it uh any, anywhere um, where you can find infrastructure capacity. Uh, difficulty with Lambda, of course, is it's so tied to the Amazon ecosystem. So it, 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 you know, it lets you run your code in the cloud, but it doesn't let you run in an infrastructure agnostic way. And that's really what Fission uh, is designed to do. It's designed to be uh, the de facto open source framework um, that uh, lets you do functions as a service or serverless computing. Right now, it's, it is built on top of Google Kubernetes, um, so it has pretty strong ties to Kubernetes, and uh, in doing so, that, it also simplifies consumption of Kubernetes. Um, so that's an added benefit. So it, it what it does is it, it it raises the abstraction level one level further. So now you don't even need to know Kubernetes constructs or even details of Docker image building, etc. You literally throw your code at at Fission, and, and it will decide how to deal with it and how to scale it and run it, et cetera. And it does a bunch of its uh, optimizations uh, behind the scenes to run it the appropriate way. Um, and so, um, you know, where it's applicable, uh, it's certainly applicable today for a lot of ops use cases. If you think of uh, DevOps, right, there, there is a lot of these one-off servers uh, or applications that they tend to run, uh, and they repeat a lot of the infrastructure aspects for running these applications, where Fission is a perfect um, uh, framework for them to do that. Um, where we see it evolving and growing is, is uh, you know, as part of Future Roadmap, is really the new way for developers to write their applications fundamentally. So we think it's going to be more than just uh, just a, you know, functions as a service uh, framework that lets you run kind of specific, simplest applications uh, that's where it, it's starting but but the the goal is to really become the next um, pass layer 
And so, I, and I think there was a some good terms that that were in there that I want to unpack a little bit. But first, I want to sort of circle back to that uh, agnostic component. So you're not just infrastructure agnostic. I think it's probably important to point out that you know you, the goal is really to be uh, language agnostic as well. And I think you guys are you guys are a Python shop and you guys support uh, Node.js and uh, but. It, you know, eventually you're just looking at whatever code you're writing, doesn't matter what it is, whether it's Go or uh, or anything, you just throw it at, you know, at this layer, and then just, it finds it, it does the load balancing, it does all that stuff in between cloud, you know, uh, it just finds compute and storage and, and other service resources and just, just goes. And in that, where do you, how do you feel, because now there's been a lot of controversy, how do you feel about that term serverless? What is that? What is that term? Because a lot of people are hearing that, and it's con- causing I think some confusion in the market. Right? How do you how do you feel about that term? Uh, but you use function as a service, which I think is a little bit better. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, pref- I prefer that one. Um, but how, do you think that's causing confusion, or, or how would you clarify that for clarify for somebody who's who's looking at this term serverless and wondering what that even what that even means? Yeah, and you know where serverless really originated is around around the fact that. Y- Today, with 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 your uh, with the paradigm that's common today, you do still need to think about servers and ops. A DevOps person needs to be aware of this notion of servers and think about them as they are looking to deploy their applications. And what serverless really means is th- that's one more level of complexity that that's now taken away from you. You don't need to think about servers, right? So I think it it makes sense, and 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 I I I like. The, the underlying idea behind it. However, I think function as a service is a better way to describe it. Some people are calling it Jeff. I don't know what that's about. Huh, I haven't heard that. <laughs> you haven't heard that? <laughs> serverless or Jeff. <laughs> I see. Because they, they want to just name it something. Ah, I see. Ah, okay. We'll just call Got it Jeff it. <laughs> so that we can stop arguing. I think that's what it was right. about. Right. Um, so the last thing I want to say, I think there was something interesting that I heard you say once, um, or maybe it was something you wrote, and that was uh, the new scale-out open-source frameworks are the new operating system for the cloud and there needs to be an extraction abstraction layer that allows people to consume that easily while removing complexity mm-hmm. and so I like that idea of the operating system for the cloud which is a sort of a term I think it's been banned about a whole bunch well this is the operating system for the cloud right, uh, right. and I don't think people really had an understanding that like well this is Windows for the cloud so you can't have a Windows for the cloud right. um, what did you mean by sort of an operating system for the cloud yeah, so so you know it, you know we we've been familiar with the with the world of the traditional model of operating systems where you are running sing, single individual servers and the operating system is abstracting away all the underlying resources that that server has available its storage its networking uh, the compute power um, all the different devices that are connected to it and it's giving it to you in a very consistent way to consume for for your end user applications or or, or other things right um, if you think of uh, you know if you draw compare that analogy to what happens in the cloud right uh, you can think of the, the the cloud as consisting of multiple of these sources that that your resources your compute storage networking resources at the very basic level are coming from and and then there is the advanced level of resources in the form of different services uh, that are being offered right and you really need a good abstraction layer or a framework uh, which then acts as that operating system in that world and and it presents them to you for your applications in a very consisting, uh, consistent way. So it exposes a consistent set of APIs that your applications can work against um, without needing to know the device-specific APIs that your operating system device drivers kind of translate, right? So that's that's really the analogy. And we think the, that that operating system layer in the cloud, cloud world is going to be dominated by these um, scale-out open-source um, frameworks, which are truly hybrid, and, and they are doing the built-in work of abstracting away the individual details of uh, uh, independent cloud endpoints. Yeah, 
so I think for our listeners, too, maybe an apt analogy was in the same way, and I think you made a reference to this as well, just the same way that our operating systems like you know Windows or Mac OS is abstracting away the machine language that's being used. So when I click on something, there's actually machine language that's telling ones and zeros to go to something and retrieve something or do perform something. It's that same thing where it's like you're making things like, you know, like a VLAN or like, you know, um, you know a scale-out microservices architecture very clickable mm-hmm. and, and removing that complexity and turning it into just, you know, oh, I just want, you know, I want my application to do this. Let me just right. click on this or let me select, well, I want this amount of RAM or this amount of storage space and I want this network and this QoS. Mm-hmm. Well, why can't I just create a template and just describe it? So just mm-hmm. give me that and say, you know, or, or let, here's an application. Why don't you tell me what you think it should have and just go and mm-hmm. run the code itself. Right, exactly <laughs> right. That's right. Excellent. All right. Well, Tony, do you want to, uh, we always like to wrap up with a question. Tony, do you want to uh, ask the uh, the, uh, the ubiquitous TalkNet podcast question? <laughs> More than happy to answer, uh, ask the, the, the final question. We ask this of everybody, and uh, we all believe that uh, some of the best lessons learned in life are usually somebody else's lessons, because um, why learn it the hard way when you can watch somebody else learn it the hard way? Um, this really goes into what would you recommend that you want to communicate out to everybody not to never do from a lesson you've learned in life that, um, you know, it, usually, usually people are asking for positive, and this is almost the opposite of that, asking uh, what should we not do? And from your lessons and your experiences building the company, what would you communicate out to people to say, don't do this because it doesn't work? Interesting. Very interesting. Um, There's always, um, you know, a big bag of lessons as you build uh, build a startup, right? Because you end up doing so many things uh, that you shouldn't be doing. Um, If I were to think of one lesson, um, really important one, I would probably say, and you know, pros and cons of this, but I would say if you're starting a company of your own, um, try to build, um, you know, don't rush too quickly into raising venture capital, right? Uh, You know, do that only if you think that that's the absolute right next step for you to do. Well, thank you. <laughs> Hold up on the VC money. Yeah, if you can. Absolutely. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Uh, it's funny, actually, because I'm on the I'm on the board of this one startup, and that's that's one of the things that she was really, she was like, I own 99%, uh-huh. and I want to I want to stay owning 98%, and I want to give my equity away to anyone else, and so um, mm-hmm. she's holding off, uh, which I think was a good idea. Um, so thank you uh, once again. Um, for joining the show um, and thank you for to all the listeners uh, for uh, joining us for another episode of the Socknet Podcast we really appreciate all the great response we've been getting from listeners if you can please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and give us a review we greatly appreciate it you can also find us on SoundCloud and Stitcher also we'd love to hear from you so please reach out to us on social media you can find us on Twitter at Sock underscore net and me at Porter DeLeon, or feel free to email us as well using socknet at druva.com and give us some feedback on the show. Um, Nora, where can uh, people find out about more about what you're doing and where you are and, and where you're going to be um, and, and reach out to you either on social media or otherwise? Definitely. So um, you, you can always find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Madura Miskowski. Um, you know, I always love to hear from people. Send me direct message, uh, etc. You can learn more about Platform Nine by going to platformnine.com um, or uh, go to Fission's website, fission.io, uh, or you can follow at Platform Nine Sys for more updates on both these projects. Excellent. Well, Madura, thanks for joining the Sagnet Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Pull up your socks.